2: Hello, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and this week's Pod Table. It is 8.30 a.m. Wednesday, July 3rd here in Washington, D.C. Yes, it's a holiday week. The House and the Senate are out of town, but there's still a lot of news, lots of important stuff to talk about and to help us sort out the news of this week and what it all means. Three of the best journalists in Washington today, covering um, not only what's happening at the White House and in the Congress, but the national political scene as well. Nikki Schwab joins us from the New York Post. Hi, Nikki. Hi, Bill. Great to see you. Alex Seitzwald from NBC News. Hello, Alex. Good morning, Bill. And Hunter Walker here from, uh, just back from the border, from for Yahoo News. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Bill. How are Welcome you? Welcome all. So yesterday, suddenly, big announcement. Let's start there, that... Um, the Census Bureau is putting is printing up its forms without a question about citizenship. Nikki, what happened?
3: Uh, well, it looks like the uh, the Trump administration had to uh, relent and and print out the census forms because, as you know, the Supreme Court said that they were not going to win this battle. What was sort of funny, though, is that the president still put out a tweet being like, you know, we will fight on USA, USA, USA. Uh, and then um, reporters confirmed that they were going to print out the census without that citizenship question. And a lot of my New York Democrats were very, very excited to hear that because they've been really sort of forcefully pushing for it to be not on the census for 2020.
2: So, Alex, you um Did Wilbur Ross lie to Congress when he said that this was not political at all? Uh, I I don't want to uh,
4: look into somebody's heart and assume I know (laughs) what they knew at the time. Oh, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But there is a a lot of evidence that the uh, Department of Commerce made this request to the Department of Justice to look into this with some political intent uh, in mind. The, the, The big issue here was that, People, uh, advocates, Democrats said that if you put a question about citizenship, it will suppress the response rate from Hispanics, not just undocumented people, but even Hispanics in general, which would then hurt in the reapportionment, the representation of Democrats in Congress. So there is a very
2: good... And also in allocation of some federal funds, or a lot of right, federal funds, absolutely. which depend on the census.
4: Which, right, they use, to, they use grants to fund community programs all over the country. So there is a very good political reason, if you are a Republican, in doing this. And they had hired uh, this consultant who had been very involved in gerrymandering, Republican gerrymandering, who passed away. And through this bizarre series of events, his daughter found these documents on his computer, shared them, with uh, lawyers which then got reported by the new york times uh and you know basically if you're going to do a a a scheme to use the federal government in a supposedly non-political way to do something political don't
2: leave a document on your computer that says this is my secret (laughs) scheme to do lesson lesson learned hunter i really wanted to talk about this because i want to ask you all of you actually what does this mean about donald trump i mean he as Nikki pointed out he was going to go to the wall with us, right? That's what he said. We're going to get this question on, fight on, fight on, fight on. And then he folded. But is this a – I mean, we've seen him do this before, shutting down the government, and then he folds. And Is this a pattern with Donald Trump? Is he more bluff than bite?
0: Well, I, th- I think we've definitely seen him lose a few fights. We've seen him win a bunch. Uh, and when he loses, he – seems to very clearly have been defeated, but as Nikki was pointing out, he's not always willing to admit that. Um, I think, <laughs> right. you know, one example that jumps to mind for me is is the Obamacare repeal. You know, I mean, we're still waiting for Mitt Romney's mystery, magical mystery plan that is going to come out soon. So I, you know, I, I think that the lingering question on this stuff is with some of these defeats does Donald Trump return to them in sort of the um, mm-hmm. next couple of years or potentially a second term, or does he just try to sort of throw them down the memory hole and pretend this stuff didn't
2: happen? Right. Does he just walk on? Right. Um, so the big event, nobody thought we would ever see the day <laughs> when a United States president um, goes to South Korea and then goes up to the DMC and actually walks into North Korean territory and, um, the big photo op for sure, uh, Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un. Who won that, Alex? Uh, was well, th- one small
4: step for Donald Trump and one—I don't know if you consider it <laughs> a giant leap forward or backwards for mankind. Um, I, I mean, I think it's safe to say that Kim Jong Un won that. Uh, there was a—it was a huge propaganda coup for him. It was, I think, a three-page spread on the uh, you know official propaganda newspaper of the North Korea. Uh, government the next day photos of, of him standing next to President Trump it makes him look like he's a player on the world stage that the. US president has come here and what did Trump get for it in return uh, we're, we're still we're still trying to to figure well, that one out
2: they certainly they certainly looked buddy buddy and we're glad to see each other this is their third third summit here's just a little bit of their exchange that's just a
0: historic moment the fact that we're meeting. And I want to thank Chairman Kim for something else. When I put out the social media notification, if he didn't show up, the press was going to make me look very bad. So you made us both look good,
2: and I appreciate it. That's what it's all about, Nikki, making them both look good.
3: I think that it was his reality TV moment. Like, he got that, you know, he got that headline. He got that, that visual. Um, and I think sort of the, the most interesting thing to come, sort of come out of that is there's this sort of a... I wouldn't say blooper reel per se, but sort of the flip-flop between how Fox News had looked at how Obama was approaching um, foreign policy. And if you do recall in the 08 cycle, Obama said he would talk to Iran and talk to North Korea, potentially, to get things moving. And, uh, you know, he was completely uh, slapped for saying that. And then, you know, cut to Donald Trump literally goes to North Korea uh, via a tweet and gets applauded by the right. It's really interesting to see.
2: Uh, also, Obama slammed when he went to Cuba. Uh, with That's same, correct. That's correct. With the same with the same reasoning. So, Hunter, what did we get <laughs> for so, all this nice nice with Kim Jong Un? Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I think there's you know there's an important point to make here, which is that diplomacy is not necessarily bad, right? But but the question that a lot of experts have here is we are handing Kim these wins in terms of these photo ops. um, And we are not getting anything concrete from him yet. Uh, And, and, you know, the, the, the carrots are are only supposed to come (laughs) after you get something for them. And, and, you know, we even saw North Korea sort of return to missile testing um, a couple months ago. Uh, So it, it seems like if anything, we're going backwards. So there, there just doesn't seem to be a concrete pairing between these summits and um, diplomatic wins for the U.S. But, but if if I may get a little bit weird here for a moment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. Hunter Walker, weird? I, I, <laughs> I flew in last night, um, and, and I was up at 2 in the morning just because I had a, a really late flight. And the Russian, I guess, defense ministry sends out this tweet, um, and they said... You know, just announcing basically, yeah, cooperation between defense ministries of Russia and the Democratic Republic, uh, People's Republic of Korea has been significantly intensified recently. And they showed uh, a photo of their deputy defense minister meeting the vice minister of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea's armed forces. And, and here's where I'm going to get even weirder. So, so first off, you know, when you see something like this from Russia, are they just trolling us? Do they have some kind of master strategy? Are they working with Trump on this? Is this some kind of you know, joint summit? Who knows, right? But, uh, but then this photo is really incredible. I'd encourage people to look it up um, because the North Korean defense officials have some of the best and most intense military hats in the game oh <laughs> they are they are like inverted salad bowls and so this this inspired me to google some of the crazier dictatorial military hats we've seen over time and i found that you know they go further with the hats than idi amin and further with the hats than even uh, probably the the best player in this game paraguay's legendary dictator alfredo strassner now this Put me down a rabbit hole where I'm reading this, like, long New York Times dispatch from Strasner's Paraguay, and at the time, in the 80s, right, it said that Strassner, who had this 35-year run in Paraguay, was only sort of outlived in, in dictatorial rule by Enver Hoxha and Kim Il-sung, and that's circa 1980. Ooh, so at this point... Yeah. At this point, I mean, really, in terms of repressive regimes, it's really only Raul Castro and the Kim family that have had this kind of longevity.
2: Mm. And, by the way, um, it it also shows that this little exchange, it seems to me, how Vladimir Putin is outplaying Donald Trump as well, not just Kim Jong-un. I mean, he obviously wanted to get in there and and, and one-up him. But I want to come back to... What we get out of this, as you point out, North Korea has not destroyed one nuclear weapon. They haven't done anything. But the Trump administration now appears ready to accept the status quo, accept a nuclear freeze, uh, Alex, or uh, um, Nikki, if you want to jump in. Yeah. Basically saying, we accept North Korea as a world nuclear power. They're a member of the nuclear club, and as long as you don't build anymore, we're okay with it. This is something that every American president has said, we will never, never allow this, including Donald Trump. Right, this so is the- Go ahead. Oh, the, the, the first uh, summit
4: between Trump and, and Kim was about denuclearization, figuring out what that would mean, setting the terms of it, agreeing to, to get there. And now that just seems to have been uh, kind of wiped off the table. I mean, it, the reality is that North Korea is a nuclear power. They have nuclear weapons. So there's sort of in a tacit admission of the reality here. But what I think um, Kim and Putin and other uh, world leaders have realized with Trump is that his form of diplomacy is very person-to-person based. It's, it's uh, very personality based. So if you have a good relationship with him, he equates that with a good relationship with the country, the, between the two countries. And you can take advantage of that by, by mm-hmm. flattering him, by showing him a good time. And he says this is all good regardless of you know those minor details about the nuclear weapons. Uh, we're going to keep things kosher here.
2: Right. And so, Nicky, one thing that we saw in in this little summit, too, is that the most important person, perhaps, in Donald Trump's team was always standing by his side. (laughs) Um, But it was not Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State. It was not the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, who wasn't even in North Korea. It was Ivanka.
3: The beauty, not the beast.
2: As was, oh. as was said, no that, that was something that's that, that Trump- New York tabloid instinct there
3: that's that's but a that
2: back cover the that, was, that was a cover of the New yeah. York Post it was yeah. a
3: joke it was a joke that, that the president said yeah um you know Ivanka definitely was everywhere at the g20 and then she and her husband also went uh with the president to the DMZ um and it's created a bunch of wonderful web memes if you haven't seen those <laughs> where people have literally inserted uh, Ivanka Trump into uh, uh, you know, m- massive historical events, whether it's like the Gettysburg Address, or um, I'm
4: trying so to the, the think of Forrest like Gump of uh, Yalta Yalta was was
0: yes, that
3: was, yeah. that was like also
0: that Game was of Thrones. <laughs> I saw people inserting Ivanka into like the Battle of Winterfell. It was amazing. She was She's also the coffee
4: re- cup on the table. She was
0: she was also <laughs> reflected off of uh, Neil Armstrong's
3: visor mm. during the moon landing. She oh. was there for that as well. <laughs> well,
0: because this was paired with with her appearances at the G20, where there was that. Uh, it, you know, and I, I, am loathe to do what we do on the internet, and we get these photos and we read a lot into them. But this clip, this little video clip, was pretty interesting, and it was Ivanka basically walking into a circle of Theresa May, Justin Trudeau, Emmanuel Macron, and uh, nice. Christine you Lagarde. Like yeah, I had to, uh-huh. I had to go hard on the Macron. Macron. Um, and Ivanka just, you know, sort of inserts herself into their conversation, and again, not, not. I wouldn't step into anyone's mind, Alex, just like you would <laughs> not. But but Christine Lagarde's face was horrified. And so between that and, and Ivanka at the DMZ, we got this great um, hashtag, unwanted Ivanka. Oh. And, and these memes have just been rolling in. I actually like thought the, the no.
3: weirder photo op was whenever she was literally sitting among the world leaders. So you see like Abe, I think Trudeau, and mm-hmm. then the president and his daughter. And I'm like, well, but... Like, you don't even go here. Like, <laughs> like, what's happening?
4: I mean, any any air can go to San Tropez or to the Alps or, you know, to the Caribbean. But how many get to go to the G20 <laughs> and the DMZ? That's That's real
2: status. That is uh, true. That is true. Showing my age now, but it just makes me think about all the c- heat that Jimmy Carter got way, way, way back. <laughs> I think his daughter, Amy, said something about... Nuclear weapons like was a really important issue. Everybody said, how dare the daughter of the president <laughs> speak out or anything? I mean, well, also, or, can or, you or, imagine if
3: Chelsea Clinton pulled this?
2: Or Malia? Or mm-hmm. Sasha? Yeah, indeed. Let's come back uh, to this country, and Hunter, you uh, just came back from the border. The New York Times this morning leads with a story about a report that came out yesterday from the Department of Homeland Security about the conditions at these detention centers and Nikki, you have just uh, visited the, uh, Homestead Homestead uh, in Florida. So forget the New York Times. You tell us, the two of you, what you saw.
3: Well, I was at Homestead. It was the day after the first night of the Democratic debate. So Homestead is about an hour's drive south of Miami. Uh, it's an old, like, Air Force base, but uh, the— section that we were looking over housed 13 to 16-year-old unaccompanied minors. And and so you actually step up on these ladders and look over, and you can see kids filing around, single file. Uh, Bill de Blasio, the New York City mayor who's running for president, who I was there to cover, he described it as a prison camp, and it definitely did have that uh, that vibe. And so everyone stands on these ladders. And How they long just, did they stay there? Uh, some have been there for months. For months.
2: I I thought there was a rule that they... Th-
3: these, th- I believe this is a HHS facility, so they can stay longer. Uh, one of the things that people noted is that for a long time, they would be playing outside without any sort of hats or, you know, probably not sunscreen, but, you know, it's obviously unclear. And so eventually they did get these kids ball caps, but they were in prison orange, so the nice. protesters are now wearing prison orange caps in solidarity, and they hold up these big paper hearts and just yell "Hola" at the kids and get the kids to wave back, sort of to show that there are people there with them in solidarity. So we had three candidates that went through that morning. It was Bill de Blasio, uh, Beto O'Rourke, and Bernie Sanders all showed up, uh, none of whom were able to actually get inside the facility because you needed to have uh, had made a reservation two weeks in advance. And the only one who's an actual active member of Congress is Bernie. So he went in and talked for a while about... Uh, trying to get access to the facility, but also couldn't eventually like get in to see anything just because he hadn't sort of reserved time in advance.
0: What'd you see? I mean, I didn't see nearly as much as Nikki, um, because basically I was down in El Paso to cover um, this delegation of Democratic members of Congress who went themselves to see some of these facilities. Did they get in? They got in, but press was not allowed in. So what I saw was, you know, the, the members outside these facilities describing um, what they said happened inside. And, you know, their claims included uh, mass overcrowding, um, included no running water in some of these detention areas. Um, you know, one, one woman uh, told, told them, allegedly, that she had to drink from the toilet because there was no water in the cell. Um, and, you know... There's a lot of debate and litigation going on online about what these Democrats said. But I think it's important to note that um, your colleagues at NBC News Alex have published a series of good reports um, where they obtained um, report in spot inspection. Um, from the Department of Homeland Security's um, Office of the Inspector General, DHS oversees Customs mm-hmm. and Border Protection, and these reports described the conditions at El Paso Border Station Number One, which is one of the places the members of Congress visited, and. By the admission of DHS, these facilities were completely overcrowded. They described standing room only conditions for weeks Mm -hmm. that people were kept in. Um, They described uh, lack of showers. They described lack of medicine. And importantly, they said that this is not just dangerous to the migrants, but actually that the CBP officers were saying that they felt in danger and that they were worried about... um, they described the situation as quote-unquote chaos and said they were worried about potential riots and hunger strikes. And one eye-popping line in the report said that um, supervisors were noticing, A, people trying to retire early because they just didn't even want to sort of police in these conditions, and B, also increased instances of domestic violence and financial problems um, among the CBP people because they are dealing with a high level of stress and trauma because, A, a) they're not meant to be... Um, you know, certainly watching children and B they're not meant to be doing it in these types of conditions. Is
2: this going to be an issue in 2020? It, it already
4: is bill. Um, I mean that it came up in the debate, uh, the entire democratic field is basically united against this. Uh, Julian Castro got some news for putting forward a, an idea to decriminalize border crossing. So you would uh, kind of head this off at the, at the past. A lot of this, uh, it would just be a, a misdemeanor. It wouldn't be criminal actions. So you wouldn't be detained. Uh, and they also all said that they, or a lot of them said that they wanted to provide health care to undocumented immigrants, which is currently prohibited under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, but, I mean, it, this is already a combustible situation, and what Hunter is talking about makes it more so. And uh, you, th- there's, on both sides of this here, we, there's been this kind of underreported um, string of police suicides in, in police departments, normal law enforcement departments across the country, because they're under increased stress. Uh, And you can only imagine what's happening to CBP officers here, uh, uh, not to excuse all the terrible things that they have been saying on these Facebook groups that have come out and uh, whatnot. But when you have these migrants who are obviously being treated terribly and you have these officers who are being asked to enforce it, some of whom probably object to it, Mm -hmm. uh, people are going to get hurt before this is all over.
2: With Nikki Schwab and Alex Seitzwald and Hunter Walker, it is the Bill Press Pod table here for Wednesday uh, broadcasting on Wednesday, July third. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with the podcast in just a second. We want to give a shout out to the members of the United Steelworkers Union uh, supporting today's podcast. The United Steelworkers, under the leadership of the uh, one and only Leo Girard, the largest industrial union in the country today. They're working hard to bring steel manufacturing back to the United States of America. They represent over 1.2 active and retired members. Uh, We salute them for their good work and their support of the program and direct you uh, to their website at usw.org.
1: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
2: And we're back with today's uh, Podtable. Nikki Schwab from the New York Post, Hunter Walker from Yahoo News, and uh, Alex Seitzwald From NBC News, NBC was the host of the first Democratic debate, two nights in a row. Thank you for that plug. Ten (laughs) candidates on each stage, uh, each night on the stage. Um, Let's just go around the table here. You're, well, first of all, maybe let's listen to the highlight to remind us, uh, was probably this is just part of the exchange between Senator Kamala Harris, who is obviously lying in wait for the opportunity to take (laughs) on front-runner, Joe Biden, and did she ever?
1: I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you when you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. Mm -hmm. But I also believe, and it's personal, and it was actually very, it was hurtful, to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked
2: with them to oppose busing. Look, everything I've done in my career, I ran because of civil rights. I continue to think we have to make fundamental changes in civil rights. And those civil rights, by the way, include not just only African-Americans, but the LGBT community. But
1: Vice President Biden, do you agree today? Do you agree today? that you were wrong to oppose busing in America then.
2: Do you agree? I did not oppose busing in America. What I opposed is busing ordered by the Department of Education. That's what I opposed. Well, there was a failure
1: of of states to to integrate public schools in America. I was part of the second class to integrate Berkeley, California, public schools almost two decades after Brown v. Board of Education.
2: Because your city council made that decision, it was a local decision. So that's where the federal
1: government must step in, that's why we have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, that's why we need to pass the Equality Act, that's why we need to pass the ERA, because there are moments in history where states fail to preserve the civil rights of all
3: people.
2: And that fiery exchange, and uh, in the aftermath of the debate, uh, her poll numbers went up and Joe Biden's went down. So your takeaways from the debate, I mean, beauty in a sense is in the eye of the beholder, right? So maybe you have different takeaways, but... uh, Basically, who came out ahead, who lost, not just in that exchange, but overall. Since you hosted the debate, we'll let you start.
4: Thank you, Bill. Um, Alex I, I mean, I, th- we now have a lot of evidence that this was a, a big win for Kamala Harris here. There's been, overall. Overall, there have been... I think five or six polls that have come out since the debate, and they've shown a very surprising movement to me uh, in favor of Kamala Harris and a little bit coming down in Joe Biden. There's a there's a widespread in what those are showing. Some There was one Quinnipiac poll yesterday that showed her basically tied, statistically tied with Joe Biden. Others uh, show less. But I think this was a really uh, smart attack politically on her part because it did a bunch of things at once. It went after some of Joe Biden's biggest vulnerabilities, which are his age, his, his generational uh Issue, you know, that he's maybe out of touch with today's Democratic Party. It went after some of his ideological uh, impurities, if you will, that he was not been on the right side of this. And it went after his two biggest political strengths in the primary, which are his strengths with African Americans and his strengths uh, with electability, the perception that he can beat Trump. The African American attack is obvious. The electability one is a little bit uh, less obvious, but we're seeing it in the polls, which is that by going after Biden so aggressively, the former vice president of the United States, somebody in our own party, uh, and she kind of comes from the establishment. She's not a Bernie Sanders. She showed that she was tough, that she could take on somebody like Donald Trump on the stage. And and this has really shown up clearly in uh, a lot of the polls. Electability is the number one issue Democrats are concerned about. Biden has had basically a monopoly on that issue. And there was a one HuffPost You poll that showed him dropping like 20 points and her climbing 10 points
2: on the question of can you beat Donald Trump? So Nikki, you were down there in Miami. I was. Both nights, right? I was indeed. Uh, who, who impressed you? I mean, it's... It, Not just Kamala Harris, but...
3: I think uh, just one sort of point I want to make about Kamala is that I think this was the first time Democratic voters could see her on a debate stage next to Donald Trump and see how she could potentially just, you know, flatten him potentially if she did the same thing that she did to to Joe Biden. So I think that's one sort of Mm -hmm. takeaway. Uh, I actually think that... Uh, Pete Buttigieg had a very honest and earnest moment a couple moments before this back and forth with Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. And I think if that hadn't happened, we would be talking about how Pete, you know, he said very, very much that he just couldn't get it done as far as getting more African-American um Uh, officers on his police force, which could potentially help some of the racial strife in South Bend. So I think that was a a good answer for him. I think a lot of people are talking about potentially a sort of dream ticket of Kamala and Buttigieg, in part because can you imagine seeing uh, Pete Buttigieg, an openly gay man, debate Mike Pence? And, And he obviously... People judge talks a lot about how Republicans have used, really, have used, you know, religion, especially Christianity, against Democrats classically, and he could sort of turn it back around on him. So that would be a really sort of interesting, you know, dream debate for some uh, Democrats. I also think that Julian Castro had a really, really excellent night, uh, the first night, and it was interesting to see how uh, Beto O'Rourke actually went to Homestead and talked for, uh, I think, like an hour in part to sort of clarify his stance on immigration, because there was a moment there where he was just looking very flat-footed. On on the debate stage after Julian was like, Well, you're not supporting this idea of decriminalizing border crossings. Instead, what Benna wants to do is he wants to just not prosecute those crossings.
2: Right. Hunter, you saw the same two nights, the same <laughs> debates. Your takeaway.
0: Well, you know, I think what Nikki was bringing up at the end is important. Um, You know, Kamala had this huge eye-popping viral moment, but there were two nights of debates. And um, certainly going out of the first night, I think um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Julian Castro, and maybe to a lesser extent, Cory Booker, um, all had some gains and strong performances. Now, we get into that second night, and obviously there was this huge um, dust up between Kamala and and the former vice president. Um, and I think we're now between these two evenings seeing some fundamental shifts in the dynamics of the race where, you know, heading into this, you had Biden as a front runner um, with Bernie behind him. Um, and, and note that we've not been yeah. talking about I, Bernie. I was going to say yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and when Biden was out in front, what I found interesting was, you know, Biden is sort of the avatar of centrism in this race, if you will. And you then had Bernie behind him, but if you added up the block that was Bernie and Elizabeth Warren, the sort of progressive part of the Dem base, that's actually the biggest part of the Democratic electorate right now. They would be well ahead of Biden if they weren't splitting that up between the two of them. Um, and what we've seen in the aftermath of these debates is kamala has gone way up warren is gaining bernie and biden are down i mean bernie has basically dropped out of the top tier and we're now seeing um biden warren and kamala and i'm sort of toying with a theory in my head that you know kamala is a little more in that center lane with biden and she may be chipping away at him but the one who may benefit from this could be elizabeth warren because the more she gets to have a Biden taken down a peg, and if Bernie's falling out of the conversation, she gets that progressive share alone. And if Biden has someone cutting up his piece of the pie, uh, that could be enough to put her over the edge. Okay. Right?
4: Kamala Harris in five minutes did what no one yeah. else has been able to do in, in five months of this race, which is disrupt the, the most consistent steady thing in this race, which was Joe Biden just chugging along at yeah. you know low 30% in the polls. No one has been able to touch that. That seems to be changing now, and that is in everyone's benefit who is not Joe Biden because now the race has opened up. All right. yeah, and and if, I,
0: if I may, I think one thing that's super important here is you know, if you go back to busing back in the day, um, it wasn't actually popular. There was opposition to it among the African-American community. And obviously, you know, I mean, even people like Thurgood Marshall talked about this. You had to work with some bad people in the structure to get anything done. The issue isn't so much what Biden did then. It's his total and utter inability to talk about his own record. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a big problem for Biden. Right. Or,
3: or show right. any sort of sensitivity. I mean, the, the biggest sort of jaw-dropping moment was not whenever Kamala was speaking. It was whenever the the first thing that came out of Biden's mouth was like, you've misrepresented my record. And that tone.
4: It's defensive.
3: That, yeah. uh, and it was, you know, it, that seemed like it was the tone that he was, he was sort of planning to take, not expecting her to sort of put out this very sensitive moment. About busing and about her own, um, you know, her own childhood memories of how that policy actually affected her in a very positive way, uh, and, and Biden just—he will not ever apologize, and he didn't have to necessarily apologize, but he should have at least like seemed like a human in that moment.
2: Right. Uh, there are so many dimensions uh, about the debate we could continue to talk about, but I've got to ask you all about the Fourth of July. This Fourth of July, <laughs> we're going to see a Fourth of July like we have never seen. Before, there are going to be tanks in the streets of Washington, D.C. <laughs> Air Force One is doing a flyover. The Blue Angels are going to perform. The President of the United States is going to give a speech from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He will be joined on stage by the Secretary of the Army, the Secretary of the Navy, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the, uh, the head of the Air Force, as their uh, service songs are played for the, for the crowd I mean, what has happened to the 4th of July? And uh, well, it, uh, is this going to be just one big MAGA rally now? I, I've, Alex? W-
4: I've always uh, said when people ask me what it's like to live in D.C. in the Trump era, that it feels a little bit like occupied territory because it's an overwhelmingly Democratic city and the Republicans <laughs> here are your kind of swampy, Jeb Bushy establishment Republicans. This will really make it feel like <laughs> occupied territory uh, with <laughs> tanks in the streets and, and uh, bombers in the sky. Uh, it, it does have a little bit of a feel of a kid who playing with his G.I. Joes who now gets to play with the, the real thing uh, because he's president of the United States. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I, I, I find it hard to get too exercised about this. It's, uh, we're, there's, they're transferring $2.5 million that should go to the national parks for this thing. It's a relatively small amount of money in the, the large scheme of things. They're going to celebrate the military. He's going to have fun. It's obviously um, not what presidents have historically done, but in the scheme of Trumpisms. Uh, Dickie, who's
2: going to pay to repave the streets?
3: We should blame Macron, speaking of which, because it was, <laughs> yeah, right. it was going back to that, because it was the Bastille Day uh, event right. two years ago yes, that yes. really got uh, the he president... You Ma- it
2: quite as distinctly. Macron. <laughs> I, and I lived in France. I should be able to do that guttural. Um,
3: anyway. Anyway. Uh, as far as who's going to pay for it, uh, the taxpayers are going to be paying for it. We
2: are, I guess, is the answer. And the yeah,
3: $2.5 yeah, was just f- from one fund. I think the Pentagon still is going to toss in money, too, is my understanding. That's just one piece of it. Yeah. yeah. So we, we don't know how much, though. And what's interesting is um, Senator Tom Udall is trying to, to get at least the Interior Department to say like how much it's going to cost mm-hmm. and send a letter to uh, David Bernhardt on Last week, and it was due back on Friday, a response. And they have yet to get a response, which is, you know, not that surprising with this administration. Maybe
2: after the 4th. You're going to be there front and center? I'm going to be in my house. um, (laughs) And and I'm going to tell you this this is a big
0: deal. This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy because the president, the master marketer, is putting on this incredible show. He's pulling out all the stops. And yet, Kid Rock, Ted Nugent. Scott Bayo, Diamond and Silk, they sit by the phone, they wait. <laughs> the USA Freedom Kids. We don't Freedom know, Kids. they might be there. Remember the USA Freedom Kids, the little girls who sang their Trump yeah. anthem? Yeah. Where are they? Mm. And these are the victims of this flagrant display of, of frankly, disloyalty to some of the president's
2: um, biggest supporters in the entertainment community. All right, so take that. Now, I ask you each to think about a favorite story, something that caught your attention this week. At, uh, um, just You couldn't let go of. You just had to think about. Uh, Nikki? So mine's
3: kind of sad. Um, oh. I am thinking today that today's the funeral of Lou Alvarez, and he was the 9-11 first responder who testified oh, yes. alongside yes. John Stewart. And so this is a story I've always been— I've obviously been following because of its ties to New York City. Um, I was in the room whenever Lou gave his testimony. And the reason why John Stewart made such an impassioned plea and basically shamed Congress is, you know, Lou was about to go into his 69th chemo treatment for liver cancer. The
2: next day, I think the video the of day, that testimony was so powerful.
3: There were five lawmakers in the room. Now, I realize it's a 14-lawmaker panel. It's a subcommittee, but still five lawmakers sort of out of it, and here's this man dying of cancer in front of them testifying. Uh, So that was a really, you know, um, it was was a big moment on Capitol Hill. Uh, He never actually got to that 69th chemo treatment. They found out that he basically, his liver had lost function, and he went into hospice like several days later. Mm -hmm. So I've talked to a lot of the first responders in the last uh, couple of, of days, and, you know, I think it's, you know, something that really has resonated with me and with the country.
2: Alex?
4: Uh, I have two, if that's all right. One fun and one serious. I'll okay. be quick. Uh, the serious one is uh, Evan Osnos' story in the New York Times, a profile of Hunter Biden, uh, which is fascinating, uh, tragic, incredibly reported, deeply human portrait of a very troubled, um, I was going to say young man, but he's not even that that young mm. anymore. Um, he struggled with addiction, uh, with Pers- all kinds of personal problems. And uh, I think the, the story has both incredible detail and is, is told in a uh, way that is both humanizing, but also doesn't pull any it's punches. It's a very powerful story.
2: And also, you know, it shows a lot of the pressures that Joe Biden's been under too. Right. And
4: still is. And still is. And, and what it's like to be, we were talking about Ivanka Trump, who is this, you know, a perfect uh, superficial kind of hologram of a person. Um, this gets at the, the depth of what it's like to be the, the child of somebody in the public eye. Uh, the other one, the silly one, is that there is a, a fancy water bar finally coming to DC <laughs> where you can pay twenty four dollars to have uh, you know artesian waters from all over the world. So uh, I'm sure you're going to be first in line there, Bill.
2: It'll uh, be very exciting. Uh, uh, tap water for me is all I ever <laughs> drink. I can't imagine. Seriously, a bar mm-hmm. where you just get water.
4: It's, it has the very uh, inventive name of get this the Water Bar.
2: The water bar, so
4: so you know exactly what it is, it's going to be down at the wharf, no doubt. Huh? Uh, weirdly, the on Georgia Ave, actually, <laughs> oh, <no>. uh, yeah, <laughs> sure in, in, in Parkview. I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure they've really I'm put mine. a lot of thought into this,
2: okay,
0: okay, Hunter. How can I top that? <laughs> um, so you know, yesterday, and I'm gonna cheat a little bit too, do, do some extra. Um, yet yeah, yesterday, I would have been planning to come in here and and A, say everybody really should read that reporting from NBC News um, with the OIG reports on the migrant detention facilities um, and really the um, other... Great reporting we've seen on the border this week was from ProPublica about these um, secret Facebook groups of Border Patrol uh, current and former Border Patrol members who are just uh, you know mocking migrants and, and uh, you know making racist and sexist comments about members of Congress. But uh, after my late night rabbit hole last night, I want to I want to bring up a deep cut and encourage people to dig into the New York Times archives and read the 1984 article "A Republic of Fear." by John Vinegar, and he was the uh, chief of the Paris Bureau. And he basically, I, I you know, we, the Times doesn't do stuff like this anymore, but he he went to Paraguay and filed this, like, lengthy literary dispatch from the regime of Strassner that is just sort of a meditation on, on the country at the time and also dictatorship in general. And it, not only is it just a really well-written and a fascinating read, but, you know, we're in this moment where... Um, I talked to Alexandria Ocasio Cortez at the border, and she, you know, has said the migrant detention centers are concentration camps, and that we are "quote unquote" headed to fascism. Um, and as this rhetoric gets bandied about, I think it is worth people reading about, you know actual authoritarian regimes and and how they started and where they got because we're seeing with this detention program we're seeing with the tanks in the streets and the parades people start to say that this does look like early authoritarianism and and it's time to study up i guess
2: uh, i can see an entire new podcast uh called uh, hunter walker down the rabbit hole at 2 a.m <laughs> um, with I, I would listen to that yeah <laughs> My uh, okay, my <laughs> I have a silly story, favorite story too, but it's quite, and I'm not a sports fan, although I do follow the Nats. I don't like the Nats, but it caught my attention in that in uh, the month of June, uh, we set a new world record for the number of home runs hit in that month. It was mm. 1,142 home runs, which is interesting because the previous record had been set just the month before. Wow! So each month we are getting more home runs hit in major league baseball. I don't know what you attribute that to. I think it's global warming. <laughs> I, I think it's the New York Yankees lineup. And, and oh. we should note that
0: Aaron Judge has been out. So these numbers are only going to climb.
4: I, I think the groundskeepers are going out every night and secretly moving
2: the the fences in one foot <laughs> just, just a little bit. Just it caught it caught my attention. Uh, there's so much more to talk about. We didn't even get to the economy 121 months of uh, continued economic growth in this country. You know that's going to play in uh, 2020. Uh, But I want to thank you all, um, Nikki Schwab, Alex Seitzwald, and Hunter Walker. Um, And I'm going to close with a little parting shot. I always uh, uh, make sure that everybody understands that the parting shot is my opinion only and not necessarily the opinion (laughs) of the members of the panel. (laughs) Having said that, uh, I hate to rain on Donald Trump's parade, but everybody else might have been... uh, might have cheered to see Donald Trump hanging out with his BFF, Kim Jong-un, last weekend, grinning ear to ear, uh, thinking this was a big triumph for diplomacy, but not me. I thought it was disgusting to see the President of the United States standing alongside one of the world's most ruthless, brutal, and murderous dictators. This is, remember, the man who ordered the execution of his uncle and every member of his uncle's family. This is the man who had his half-brother assassinated. In February 2017, South Korean intelligence reported that Kim Jong-un had personally ordered the execution of 340 people, both members of the government and members of his family, since he took office in 2011. Today, the United Nations says there are still... 80 to 120,000 North Koreans, including children that are being held political prisoners in that country, facing conditions of forced labor, starvation rations, um, no health care at all, rape, torture, and public executions. You have to ask, does Donald Trump know or does he even care? And I admit that sometimes uh, we've got to do deals with the devil in foreign policy. Truman did so with Stalin. And that's okay as long as we get something for it. But what do we get out of three summits with Kim Jong-un? Absolutely nothing. They've destroyed not one nuclear weapon. They're still building more. And now the Trump administration says that they are willing to accept North Korea as a nuclear power. In other words, the clear winner from those meetings is is Kim Jong-un, who plays Donald Trump like a violin. But in the end, maybe it's no surprise that Kim Jong-un would meet with this murderous dictator. After all, uh, his meeting with Kim Jong-un came one day after he, he hosted a breakfast for another murderer, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And you can bet that one subject not discussed at that breakfast was the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. That's my parting shot for today. Again, uh, that's and that's today's edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thanks again for joining us. And don't forget, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you turn for your favorite podcast. Tell your friends about it. And if you like what you heard today, please help us spread the word by giving us a five-star review. Again, many thanks to all of you. Thanks to Nikki Schwab and Alex Seitzwald and Hunter Walker. And we'll see you on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.